If you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 21. We will start in verse 37. Luke chapter 21, I'm going to start reading in verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, the word that you superintended by your Holy Spirit, the word that you worked powerfully through Luke to record for us, your perfect word. We pray that we would understand it, that you would give us understanding, that you would not only help us to know this word, but, Father, that you would work powerfully in our hearts to change our hearts to reorient them toward a a right understanding and love for you so that we might live in response to that and so give you honor. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I I know we all have probably favorite stories in the Bible that we we sort of want to read again and again and again. One of my favorite stories in the Bible that I like to read over and over and over again is the story of Joseph. Are you familiar with that story? Just in case you are, let me give you, uh, or aren't, let me give a little primer on the story of Joseph. There was a man named Abraham to whom God made a promise. He made a promise that through Abraham's seed or his nation would come the Messiah, that he would bless Abraham's seed, he would give him many children, and he would make a great nation of him through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham had a son named Isaac, And Isaac had a son named Jacob, and I'm fast-forwarding a whole bunch. And Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom is named Joseph. Joseph was one of the younger of the sons. That means Joseph has several older brothers. If you have ever had older brothers, you might know what that is like. But Joseph had several older brothers, and And in his lifetime as an adult man, God gave him a dream. 
And the Lord gave a dream to Joseph in which he, Joseph saw himself exalted above his brothers. He saw them coming before him as if he were their king and even bowing down before him. And Joseph went to the links to tell his brothers about this dream. You can imagine how that goes over. But they didn't just give him a wedgie or some other kind of cruel thing in response. That isn't what they did. His brothers hated him for the dream. And they plotted to kill him. At the request of one of his brothers, they decided to sell him into slavery and report to their father that he was dead. And through this whole process of events, Joseph ended up in Jesus and by, excuse me, in Egypt, and by the work of the Lord through a series of events, Joseph rose to be second in power only to Pharaoh. And when a famine struck the land, Joseph's brothers, as did all the people in that area, came to Egypt to get provisions because under Joseph's leadership, as a result of a vision that the Lord had given to Pharaoh, they had stored up in Egypt several years' worth of supplies for the coming famine. And so Joseph's brothers, thinking that perhaps Joseph was dead by now, at least Joseph was at best somebody's slave somewhere, came to Egypt, and when they came for provisions, they came before the leader in Egypt, and that man was Joseph. And they didn't even recognize him. Eventually, though, they came to know that Joseph was the leader in Egypt, that this man they were looking at was their brother. And as a result of that, they became very afraid. You could imagine they would. We threw our brother in a ditch. We sold him to slave traders. He ended up in Egypt. We told our dad he's dead. He is now the most powerful man in the world, aside or next to Pharaoh, and he has got to be ticked off. But Joseph loved them and he forgave them. At one point, they were actually so afraid of Joseph that they fell down before him, begging him for forgiveness. And Joseph not only told them not to fear, I I want you to hear what he went on to say. He went on to say this, As for you, you meant evil against me. So you sold me into slavery, meaning evil against me. You even wanted to kill me. You were seeking a plan that was an evil plan against me. But God meant it for good. See, while you were running a plan, God was running one as well. You were running an evil plan, and God was running one for good. He did it to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, what we learn from the story of Joseph is that Joseph's brother's sin was part of the plan of God their wicked plan fit into the plan of God to bring about their own salvation from death and famine. Think of it. Their own wickedness and sin led to God providing for them. He meant their good. Did you catch that? There were two plans happening at the same time. 
The brothers made an evil plan to bring harm to Joseph, but the Lord made a good plan to save him for the purpose of saving many others, including the very brothers who made the evil plan. In fact, the two plans converged in such a glorious way that it's hard not to want to read that passage of Scripture over and over and over again. And today we're going to see much the same in our passage. Today we're really going to see two plans happening once again. Just like we saw with Joseph's brothers and the Lord, in Joseph's life we're going to see two plans converging. And here are the plans. The first plan is the plan of Satan, Judas Iscariot, and the religious leaders. In other words, all three of those groups, Satan, Judas Iscariot and the religious leaders come together to make one plan, and it's a plan for the destruction or the death of Jesus. At the same time, we're going to see a second plan, and that's the plan of Jesus and his father to bring about the death of Jesus. As we look at these two plans, we will see that the Lord intended the evil plan of Satan and Judas and the religious leaders, the Lord intended that for the salvation of his people. The Lord predetermined that their evil plan would take place. That's a stunner. I'm going to prove it right out of the text of Scripture, but it's a stunner if you stop and consider the Lord predetermined that their evil plan would take place. But what they meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. So let's look at the text, because it's one thing to make assertions, it's another thing to demonstrate it's true. Let's look at Luke chapter 22, and we'll start in verse 1. We'll start by looking at the plan for the destruction of Jesus. We know that Jesus has been teaching for several days in this area and then returning to the mount called Olivet and in the morning coming back into the temple to preach, etc., etc., and lots of people are coming to hear him. And then we're given this detail in the midst of that. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. That came on Thursday. They're talking about the Passover feast. And for a couple of days prior to the Passover feast, they would actually spend time cleaning out their homes of all leaven. Any kind of yeast anywhere in your home, in any product, in any way, they would sweep out the house and get rid of all of it to prepare for the Passover feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. This means that we're somewhere in the last couple days of the life of Christ, most likely right around Tuesday or Wednesday. He dies on Friday. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking, now catch this, this, the religious leaders were seeking how to put him to death. They wanted a plan by which they could put Jesus to death. For they feared the people. In other words, they needed a plan that was secretive because they were so afraid of the opinions of the crowd. They were so afraid of of the crowd revolting against them. They were the cowardly kind of men. And what's interesting is the very men, the religious leaders, who should have been pointing to Christ, the very men who should have been saying, He's come, the Messiah is here, the answer to all the promises of the Old Testament is being fulfilled, he's standing right in front of us, the very men who should have been declaring that were seeking to kill him. His popularity had surpassed their own, and they feared the crowds, so they did their bidding in secret. Look what verse, says th- verse 3 says, sorry, verse 3. Then Satan 
entered into Judas called Iscariot. Now, we don't exactly know what that means, except it means he entered into him. It isn't good. You don't want that said of you in the Bible. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one who was of the number of the twelve. In other words, he's one of the twelve apostles. In fact, after Judas, this whole thing goes down and Judas finally commits suicide, the disciples or the apostles realize they need a twelfth, and so they actually go and draw, draw lots, if you will, and they appoint who? Matthias. But he's one of the twelve. He's part of the inner circle. He's a guy who followed Christ. He went away, that's Judas, went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. So now they're plotting together. And perhaps one of the most condemning statements in all of Scripture, and they were glad. They were glad to confer on how to assassinate the Son of God. That gave them joy. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, now I want you to think about Judas Iscariot for a moment. It's easy for us to read back on this text, having all the information we have about how this ends, that Judas Iscariot is the one who betrays Christ. That Judas Iscariot is the one who plots with the religious leaders and with Satan to commit the greatest sin in the history of the world. And it's easy to look on him and always read about him with some sense of, of vitriol toward him, some sense of anger toward him. And I'm not saying that he didn't sin greatly, but I want you to think of what it was like for the rest of the disciples. They had lived with Judas Iscariot and walked with him, with Christ, in Christ's presence for over three years. He was one of the twelve who was closest to Jesus. He shared meals with them. He shared journeys with them. He shared questions with them. He shared life with them and with Jesus. He saw the strength of Jesus as he calmed storms and fed thousands, and rebuked the Pharisees, and raised the dead, and walked on water. He saw the kindness of Jesus as he prayed for the multitudes, healed many, wept over the sins of Jerusalem, and called many to salvation. He knew the wisdom of Jesus as he heard him teach sermons, confound the religious leaders who tried to trap him, and respond to the needs of others in truly compassionate ways. He himself was sent out on a missionary journey by Jesus, in which he led people to faith in the Messiah, in which he himself participated in the casting out of demons and miracles. He was the treasurer of the group who took care of the money. This guy is about as close to Jesus and all the other disciples as you can possibly imagine. He saw all the glorious things we read about in the Gospels, and after all he saw and all he heard and all he enjoyed, he decided to deliver Jesus into the hands of evil men. After all that, he still betrayed him. See, I think we live in this, in this fairy tale kind of fantasy world in which we think, you know what, our evangelists around the country stink at this, but if Jesus just walked around, everybody would love him. 
If they just really got to know him and walk next to him, they would be his kindest friends. They would love him and follow him to the end. Yet what we read in history that happened when Jesus ran, walked around with real people, they hated him, they plotted against him, and they killed him. Even his closest friend. You say, well, all the 12 are his close. Yeah. One of his closest friends plotted to kill him. So why did Judas betray Jesus? Why? Because we got to ask the question, how could you see all that and walk through all that and participate in all that and know Jesus and still plot his death? Perhaps because Jesus wasn't what Judas had hoped for. See, Judas didn't want a king who would save him from his sins. Judas wanted a king who would bring him prosperity and physical healing and personal success. Perhaps that's the reason. See, maybe Judas was a big or Jesus, sorry, was a big disappointment for Judas. Judas wasn't getting what he wanted from Jesus, so he found another way to get it. How do I know that? What did he want? We're told in verse 5, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. In fact, we learn in Matthew 26, 15 through 16, that he was paid 30 pieces of silver. That was the price for Jesus' head. 30 pieces of silver. What's that equivalent to us, for us today? About $7,500 in today's dollars. That would be the equivalency. Judas was covetous. He desired wealth. He lacked contentment with what the Lord had provided. And Jesus warned the disciples against this kind of covetousness. Keep your hand in Luke 22 and go to Luke 12. Luke chapter 12. Because he warns them. And he, that's Jesus, verse 15, Luke 12 and verse 15. And he, that being Jesus, said to them, that's the disciples and the crowd, take care. Listen, take care. Here's a command. Take care and be on your guard against all, co- all covetousness. Do you hear that? You're not just supposed to avoid covetousness. You're supposed to be on your guard. Take special care. Be on your guard against this, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You better be on your guard. You better take care. You better not fall into the trap of thinking your life exists in the abundance of your possessions. And apparently Judas was not heeding Jesus' warning against guarding his heart from covetousness. How do we know that? It's not just here when Satan takes over. Look at John chapter 12. Keep your hand in Luke 22 still and look at John chapter 12. We know that this covetousness was an ongoing problem for Judas. John chapter 12 and look at verse 6. Actually, we'll start in verse 4 because here's a story of where this woman is pouring perfume out on Jesus, which costs quite a bit of money. Mary, in fact, is pouring this perfume out on him. But Judas Iscariot, verse 4, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
See, see, why didn't we sell it and give it to the poor? A, a denarius is about a, a day's uh, labor, so this would be 300 days of labor, nearly a whole working year, or at least, or more than a whole working year. Why was that not sold and given to the poor? That's what Judas says his concern is. But we learn this in verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Hear that? Here's a man who persisted in the sin of covetousness. A man who tried to even cover his sin of covetousness with an outward show of religiosity and concern for the poor. Judas had an idolatry problem. Paul tells us in Colossians that to to participate in covetousness is idolatry. He wanted something more than Jesus. See, he didn't want Jesus. He wanted what he thought Jesus could give him, and he wanted what Jesus he thought Jesus could give him more than he wanted Jesus. And what did he want? He wanted money. Contentment is godliness and leads to peace. I want you to hear this. Contentment is godliness and leads to peace. Covetousness and desire for wealth is idolatry and leads to destruction. That's why Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Hear that? But those who desire to be rich. If I did an honest survey of this room, how many of you desire to be rich? Check your own heart. How many of you desire to be rich? See, if you do, if you're actively desiring wealth, you're not guarding your heart against covetousness. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Isn't that true with Judas? Hebrews 13.5, the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 13, verse 5, keep your life free. Listen, keep your life free from love, the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, what do you have? You have Jesus. Be content with him who will never leave you nor forsake you. Stop pursuing life as something that's to be found in the abundance of possessions. Keep your life free from the love of money. Don't desire to be rich. Guard your hearts. Take care. Not to let yourself fall into covetousness. I think one of our problems in the evangelical church in America particularly, and I don't know about the rest of the world, but particularly here, is that we think the love of money is a lesser sin. You know of all the other sins I commit, sexual sin, lust, being angry towards someone else. We, we could go on the things that we think are really bad. And we think, the love of my, my, what I don't regularly find myself repenting of is my love of money. What I don't regularly find myself repenting of is my desire to have more. What I don't regularly find myself repenting of is my lack of contentment. What I don't regularly find myself 
repenting of is my covetousness for what my neighbor has. Even if it's not their stuff, maybe it's their personality, their skill set, their success. I just covet things all the time, and I don't find myself regularly repenting of those things. Maybe that's where we're really at. Man, if I lie, I find myself repenting of that. That was bad. I shouldn't have lied. Right? But how often do you think to yourself throughout the day, I see myself longing for things I don't have. I see my heart getting caught up in covetousness. I see myself desiring more. I see myself lacking in contentment with what the Lord has provided. I better guard against that. I better repent of that and remind myself that I have Jesus and he is the same yesterday and today and forever and he will never leave me and forsake me and he's enough for me. We think the love of money is a lesser sin, so we gamble. We think the love of money is a lesser sin, and so we pursue success at all costs. We think the love of money is a lesser sin, and so we disciple our children in such a way that what we teach them is that what really matters is you become wildly successful, you go to the right colleges, you get the right job, not that you love Jesus. We see the love of money as such a lesser sin that we will actually never ever really look in the mirror and say, is this a real problem in my life? Do I have a contentment issue? We just avoid it. Because our culture screams at us, you deserve more. You want more. You need more. And we embrace it. But I, I want you to understand, the love of money is not a lesser sin. The love of money is the sin behind the greatest evil in the history of the world. Jesus was murdered for the love of money. And we are warned again and again to keep our lives from the love of money, to be content and to avoid the desire for wealth. And the question is, how often are you vigorously fighting this in your own heart? See, we may not be Judas selling Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, but we may betray him still. Will you do something unethical for the sake of a promotion or keeping your job? Will you hide income from the government to keep from paying taxes? Will you give your whole life forsaking family and corporate worship to move up the ladder of success? Will you sell out attending to the word, attending to your family, attending to your local church to further your own career goals? If you will, it's no different than Judas giving 30 pieces of silver to sell out Jesus. Because you've preferred an idol over the Lord. There are subtle forms of preferring wealth or success or comfort over Jesus. All while you're violating clear commands to gain more money. You're just... You're just Violating clear commands of God so that you can gain more money. These are warnings provided for our good. 
Be warned because Judas, now I want you to hear this, Judas was not an innocent party in Satan grabbing a hold of his heart. Satan was able to grab a hold of Judas's heart because Satan is, excuse me, because Judas spent so much time meditating on his own discontentment rather than thankfulness for God's provision. You want to know how Satan's going to grab a hold of your heart? The same way. He is like a roaring lion. He's prowling around looking for someone discontent, looking for someone desiring wealth, looking for someone desiring success so that he can devour them with their desires. We must battle and war for contentment because Satan is prowling around. And he will eat us alive with our own desires for more. So Satan, Judas, and the Jewish religious leaders planned for Jesus' death. That was their plan. Let's look at the second plan, verse 7. The plan of the salvation for the salvation of many. The plan of Jesus for the salvation of many. Look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, and they had to enter Jerusalem because according to Deuteronomy 16, just so you're aware, Deuteronomy 16, I think in verse 15 and 16, if I remember properly, it says that the Passover lamb has to be consumed, or the Passover has to happen within the city walls of Jerusalem. So that's where they're going. When you've entered the city, a man carrying a a jar of water will meet you. Now that would have been a stunner because the disciples would only have expected a woman to be carrying a jar of water in that culture. But here's a man carrying a jar of water, so a tip-off to them. A man carrying a jar, jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I meet my... I may eat the Passover with my disciples, and he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. You see, Jesus is making plans for the Passover within the city walls of Jerusalem. Jesus is preparing his plan. Jesus either prearranged in his plan this room where he would meet with the owner and this man who would carry this jar of water, he either prearranged that for the purpose of secrecy or he divinely knew it was the case. Either way, either way, whichever opinion of that is true, the point is Jesus was making an intentional plan for Passover. This is the meal, Passover, which we will consider next week. We'll get into this next week more, especially the following verses. We're in Christ, but at this meal, what I want you to get a hold of here for our purposes today is this is the meal where Christ will announce and inaugurate, begin the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. But in order for the new covenant to take place, the new covenant must be cut. All covenants must be cut. And this covenant was cut with the blood of Jesus on the cross. For the new covenant to be cut, Jesus had to give his life. 
This is also the time when which Jesus makes it clear that he knows he is going to be betrayed. He even tells us that his betrayal has been predetermined by the Lord. Look at verse 21 and 22 of Luke 22. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. In other words, he's coming to Passover knowing Judas Iscariot is there, knowing Judas Iscariot is planning to betray him. He's at the table, and what he goes on says, For the Son of Man goes, now notice this, as it has been determined. By who? There's a divine passive by the Lord. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, and then he goes on to say, But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas. Woe unto him. See, why does Jesus need to die, and why is the story going down this way? That's one of the questions you ought to ask as you're looking at. Why does Jesus need to die, and why is the story going down this way? To understand that, we have to go back to the beginning. We really do. We've got to go back to the garden. Adam and Eve were created by God to walk with him in perfect holiness. And God had told Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree or the fruit of any tree in the garden but there's one tree in the midst of the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil of that tree you shall not eat and they got to walk with the lord in perfect fellowship and holiness and satan came devising a plan to trip them up and adam and eve fell into satan's plan and they sinned And as a result, they incurred the penalty of death, both physical and spiritual death. The Lord had warned them that would be so, and they didn't believe him. And we read this in Genesis 3.15 as the Lord curses them. I want you to turn to Genesis. I want you to see this. Genesis chapter 3, as the Lord is cursing them, Satan and them, for sin... We get this promise which is key, this promise in the midst of the curse, which is key to understanding the story we're even looking at today. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I will put enmity, this is he's, the Lord is speaking to Satan here, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's Eve, and between your offspring, those are the followers of Satan, and her offspring, those are the followers of the Lord. He, and most specifically Christ, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, there's a seed of the woman coming. He's going to crush your head, Satan, but you will successfully strike him in the process. Now what's interesting is Adam and Eve are hearing these curses, right? And this blessing. And they come out of hearing these very devastating curses. And they cling to this promise in Genesis 3.15. They cling to it. How do I know they cling to the promise in Genesis 3.15? Because death has come and The Lord has just told them that here's how life will come. Life will come from the seed or the offspring of this woman. And how do I know they're clinging to that? Look at verse 20 of Genesis 3. They come out of the curse, and the first thing, the man called his wife's name Eve. That isn't incidental. 
Why did he call her name Eve? Because she was the mother of all living. Hear that? They're supposed to die. But Adam hears that Eve will be the mother of all that are living. And so he names her Eve, trusting the promise in Genesis 3.15. And lest you want to follow that up, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They had tried to cover themselves, and the Lord covered them for them. Now, Paul verifies my understanding of this text if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and spend any time there, but I'm not going to take you there today. I don't have time. Adam understood that the Savior, the one who would bring them life, was coming through his wife. Satan understood his nemesis was coming from the seed of the woman as well. I want you to hear that. He understood the one who would conquer him was coming from her seed as well. That's why we see this carried throughout Scripture as Satan and his seed stand opposed to the seed of the woman. We see this conflict immediately as Cain kills Abel, as the brothers of Joseph try to destroy him, as Pharaoh oppresses Israel, and as Herod tries to kill Jesus after his birth. Satan's seed is constantly on the move trying to attack the seed of the woman. We see this desire in Satan to take down the seed of the woman in Luke chapter 4. So look there, Luke chapter 4. And we see this develop through the gospel of Luke. Jesus has been tempted by Satan. Satan wanting him to sin and fall from the Lord. And in verse 13, after Jesus has successfully withstood those temptations in our place where Adam failed to and Israel failed to, as Jesus was successful in upstanding to those temptations, we hear this, verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So he's still looking to plan, still plotting to take down Jesus. And we see that start to develop in the Pharisees who are his seed. They're the seed of the serpent. How do I know that? Because John the Baptist calls them that, doesn't he? What do you think your brood of vipers refers to? How do I look at Luke chapter 11 as we see that develop? Luke chapter 11, verse 53. As he went away from there... The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. Now notice, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They are, as Jesus said, children of their father, the devil. You think Jesus understands what was said in Genesis 3.15? And we see it being played out. Now look at Luke 19, chapter 47. Luke 19, sorry, Luke chapter 19, verse 47. Verse. I just want you to look at the very end as he's decrying these 
false teachers, he makes this statement, they will receive the greater condemnation. You see, when Jesus goes to the cross and dies for their sins, for our sins, he is simultaneously crushing the head of the serpent and all his followers. And he will return to judge the living and the dead. And he will put that great serpent into the pit with all of his followers. We're clearly told that in Scripture. Satan wanted to take down Jesus. Satan and his offspring stand opposed to the Lord and his people. And that runs through the story of Scripture. Jesus had to fulfill Genesis 3.15. Jesus came to crush the head of Satan through his own death on the cross. And while the cross looks like defeat, death could not hold him. Further at the cross, Jesus paid for all of our sins. He gave us life and he reversed the curse which came because of the temptation of Satan. Not only did Jesus save us from the consequences of our sin, he resurrected and promised to return one day to crush Satan, Paul says in Romans, under our feet. The question is, do you trust in Jesus? Do you trust him? Listen, Satan and Judas and the religious leaders had a plan, and they thought it was foolproof, but they had no idea what fools they were. Like Joseph's brothers attempting to destroy him, God was working in that for the good of his people. They meant it for evil, but he meant it for good. Look at Acts chapter 2, same author as Luke. Uh, Luke is the same, he also wrote Acts. Look at chapter 2, and I want you to see as Peter is preaching at Pentecost, what he says, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, now follow this, this Jesus delivered up, he's talking about the cross here, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Hear that? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, you had a plan, and God had a plan. And what you didn't know, men of Israel, is that those two plans were converging for your salvation if you'd only repent and turn to him. Your own sin was converging with God's plan to bring about your salvation if you'd only look to him. Christians, God has always been working out his plans even when your evil acts or Satan's evil devices or the evil acts of others bring you great harm. Even when you can't see how things going wrong in your life could possibly be for your good. Even then the Lord is at work for your good and his glory. The Lord used the greatest I want you to think about this. The greatest sin, the greatest crime in human history to bring the greatest good we could ever know. He can bring good in the midst of your woes too. 
He is bringing good in the midst of them too. To those who don't know Jesus, God, I want you to understand this, God doesn't make mistakes. His plans are perfect. Even his plan to bring you here this morning isn't a mistake. There's a reason for it. You had your plans in coming. And he had his plans in bringing you here. Whatever your plan is was in coming, his plan was for you to hear the word. I can only pray that, that this word that you're hearing is an aroma of life to you and not an aroma of death. And I plead with you to turn to Jesus, to turn from your sins, to trust in him alone, and know that in him you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would keep us ever mindful of the fact that you were working out your plans for our good and your glory And your plans can never be thwarted, not even by our sin, not even by our evil acts. But you are so wise and sovereign and good that you're working even through those things and tending them for the good of your people and the glory of your name. We are thankful, Father, that you used the sin of man to bring about our salvation in Christ. You even intended it for that. We can't understand all the divine mysteries of how you work, but we can know that your word declares to us that you are at work and you are good and that we should trust you. We thank you for your son Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf. We pray that you would be exalted in our lives. Pray for those here who don't know your son, that they would turn to him even this morning, that they would recognize that he is their hope. that he has crushed Satan under his feet, that he will crush all his enemies under his feet, and that they don't want to be his enemies. Father, bring them to trust in your son so that they might be his friends and his brothers and so know his grace for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.